0: Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room, and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com.
1: The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is
2: clearly a
1: thing. Is what you love about the NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT and NBA TV.
0: Welcome to The Rest is Policies Leading with me, Alistair Campbell. And me, Rory Stewart. And... I think it's fair to say that of all the many, many elections happening in the world this year, the American presidential election will be the one that is most closely watched around the world. And I think today's guest will be able to give us a very interesting perspective. He is a lifelong Republican with politics in his blood, graduate in political science. He became a press secretary, aged just 25 to the governor of his native South Carolina. And I think you'll enjoy his South Carolina draw. He's worked for American presidents from Ronald Reagan to George W. Bush and with two pretty remarkable Republican Party strategists, Lee Atwater and Karl Rove. He worked on John McCain's losing campaign to Barack Obama in 2008 when he had the onerous task of looking after Sarah Palin, McCain's running mate. Now, I got to know this gentleman when he was a media advisor to George Bush Jr., George W., when he was seconded to work alongside me in Downing Street when we were seeking to coordinate the global response to the September 11 attacks in New York of 2001. He was a very, very good colleague, and despite our pretty major political differences, a very good friend. Now, one other big difference, I don't do God, and he does. That also, I think, gives him a very interesting insight into what is happening inside the party to which he has devoted most of his life and yet which, last time around, for the first time in his life, he voted against. Tucker Eskew, it's fair to say, is not a fan of Donald Trump. So, Tucker, thanks for joining us. I would maybe like to start with that. What was it like for you as a lifelong Republican putting across against a Democrat presidential candidate?
1: Well, it started in a sense in 2008, Alistair, and, and Rory, thank you for having me. I, I, uh, I said after that election that I was a recovering Republican. I <laughs> tell people now I'm a recovering politico. Uh, I don't do campaigns, I've made one exception here or there, but I help uh, other companies and causes take what I learned in politics and apply it to the civic square. So in 2016, I found myself writing in. I couldn't bring myself to vote for Hillary Clinton. I certainly couldn't vote for Donald Trump. You get fast forward to 2020, the stakes are that much higher and the chance of Trump being reelected that much greater than I had thought his chances were in 2016. So I got a call. I'll set the scene for you. It's August, 2020. My friend, Tim Scott, Senator from my home state calls me up to tell me that he has been chosen to speak at the Republican convention. I put air quotes around convention because they ultimately held it in the South Lawn of the White House, an abomination to those of us who revere that as a political ground. And he was quite proud of this, and I was pleased to give him some advice about that speech. But I wanted to tell him the truth, and I did. At the end of that conversation, I said, "Tim, I have this year voted in a Democratic presidential primary." For the first time in my life. And I hope it's the last. And I'm going to vote for a Democratic candidate for president in the general election in 2020 for the first time.
3: And I hope it's the last. Tucker, thank you for joining us and great to hear from you. Let's take you back to your beginnings. You're a, somebody who began your political career in South Carolina. And that's unbelievably relevant because of where we are at the moment, right? We're about to go into a primary in South Carolina. Nikki Haley, who's the lead contender against Donald Trump, was governor of South Carolina. Your friend Tim Scott, the senator for South Carolina, has been a key figure in endorsing Donald Trump. I mean, South Carolina really seems to be absolutely at the heart of everything at the moment. Tell us a little bit about South Carolina. Why does it count? And then let's move on a little bit to why Nikki Haley isn't going to sweep South Carolina. There's a good bit of history there, Rory. It goes back really to 1980
1: and the Reagan campaign in which A person who went on to become a mentor to me in an early period in my career, Lee Atwater, whom Alistair just mentioned, along with Carol Campbell, the man who became governor of that state. So two leading republicans help
3: position the state so that its primary would start to take on significance. Tucker, can I interrupt for a second? because a lot of our audience are not Americans. Presumably, it really matters how early you are. I mean, we've all been concentrating on Iowa and New Hampshire with these tiny voter bases, and you know, a few hundred thousand people voting make a huge difference. How do you get to move up the line? How do you get to have your primary before other people and get the headlines?
1: Well, primaries are not governed by the law. There are state laws that do apply to primaries, but parties often sit in the driver's seat and in South Carolina, that was the case. It was an extra legal arrangement where the party ran its own primary so it could change its own dates. So I know that's a novel system. Uh, You have both talked recently on your podcast about how odd this system is and how Unchanged it is, despite all the many changes around us. There have been little adjustments to the calendar, but yes, South Carolina comes early. And yet, if you want some more recent history than 1980, go back to 2000, when George W. Bush and John McCain came barreling out of New Hampshire, a very important early state, as you have already covered in previous discussions, and came to South Carolina. There were not quite two weeks to work between the New Hampshire result, which John McCain won. And the South Carolina primary. This year we have a month.
3: Let's take us back to that so we can understand the context of how this normally works. So McCain came out of that leading. How had he done in Iowa? How did it look then? Because we know the end of the story, which is George W. Bush won that race, but had McCain dominated in Iowa, New Hampshire, and then South Carolina became the place to turn it around? George W. Bush won Iowa. McCain wrestled back the
1: momentum by winning New Hampshire with his straight talk express. and Then we came to South Carolina and we beat the McCain. We beat him. It was a hard-fought campaign. There were allegations, impropriety. Uh, South Carolina is known for tough politics. Not as tough as the allegations put forth, but it was a tough, hard-fought campaign. George W. Bush was the victor. McCain stayed in the race
3: after that, and there were further primaries for a number of weeks, but not too many weeks. You mentioned that there were allegations at the time. Tell us a little bit about what the allegations are what the worst things that can happen in primaries are, what the history of South Carolina primaries and whether any of this could be true this time around too.
1: Well, Lee Atwater is known in American political circles for a tough, dare I say, knife fighters approach to politics. He he was associated with the term wedge issues. A wedge being something that would cleave one part of the electorate from another part. And Lee was masterful at understanding human motivations and I think his reputation took on almost mythic qualities, some of which he encouraged, some of which were probably true, some of which were not. And, you know, we'll leave it to higher powers, Alistair, <laughs> to determine what's true and what's not true in all of that. Uh, South Carolina politics is tough. American politics is tough. And yet we had never, until Donald Trump, had anyone as transgressive, as brutal, as personally derogatory, as norm-busting as this. So some people would say South Carolina is the perfect territory for him. But let's remember, it's a state that elected and re-elected Nikki Haley. And it's been 10 years since she's been on the ballot there, but I know she has wanted to take the campaign into her home territory where she faced some terrible allegations about personal behavior, and I'm not gonna give airing to the sort of sordid stuff that can come out, but I will say she persevered through all of that, was elected and reelected, and I think she wants to get on home turf. It's not especially friendly turf, though, to her and to the idea of non-Trumpism. I won't necessarily call it anti-Trumpism, but just the you folks have defined it. There are people who are always Trumpers, They're the maybe-Trumpers and the never-Trumpers, and she wants some of all of those, but mostly the
0: maybe-Trumpers and the never-Trumpers, and at this point, they're not enough. Chuck, can you see any way that Donald Trump isn't the Republican Party presidential candidate? Well, we keep going back to higher powers, but an act of God could stop that. It's
1: very hard to see how anything short of that keeps him from the Republican nomination. There are surveys that show a significant minority of the Republican electorate would not vote for him were he convicted in a court of law. Sadly, uh, Trump has a way of defining deviancy from the norms downward. And I think there's a chance that that too could fade, just as being indicted might once have killed a presidential candidate's chances. Sadly, it has locked in some of his base who have gotten quite accustomed to defending what in any prior period of American history would have been indefensible.
0: So what does it say about your country that this is happening? I mean, I think that were Trump a British politician, I think he'd be finished by now. But as you say, these scandals and these court cases and these indictments, they seem to help him rather than hinder him. So what on earth has happened to the party that you supported and also the country that you're so proud of?
1: And I am. uh, You know, demography, sociology,
0: psychology,
1: and pathology. You really have to understand all the different forces that led us to this moment. But the fact that Donald Trump is one of a kind with shamelessness as his superpower, means that people who might have been unhappy or angry about some circumstances in 2015 and 2016, people who are caught up in his charisma and he's got it in enormous amounts, it's a kind of dark charisma of course, but it is entertaining and it attracts people's attention in an era where attention is the greatest commodity out there. You take those unhappy people, you take a rapidly changing society And even those voters who had doubts about him had more reason in 2016 to vote against Hillary Clinton, doubts about the Clinton era and all that came with it and her weaknesses as a candidate and the legal issues that were raised in that campaign. And so people began to defend, as I said, the indefensible. And over the last years, they have become quite accustomed, so much so that even when they defend it, they start to believe it. And I think there's a kind of cognitive dissonance here where people are defending things they never would have before because they've put on a higher pillar
3: their allegiance to Donald Trump. And Tucker, we absolutely understand that you're now a fervent critic and opponent of Donald Trump, but am I picking up that in 2016 you actually voted for him? And if that's true, could you talk us through the kind of psychology then of how people felt in 2016 about Hillary Clinton and about Trump?
1: I uh, wrote in Evan McMullen's name Don't know how it works in the UK, but we have the option on our ballots of writing in a name. I couldn't find myself. Hillary Clinton had in 2016 given me a center-right, lifelong Republican, no reason to vote for her. And admittedly, many, many Americans just didn't conceive that Donald Trump could win.
3: Tell us about, because we've interviewed Hillary Clinton on the show, and Alistair and I are quite sympathetic towards her. And I guess most of our listeners would be. Could you explain what the case is against her? Take us back to 2016 and why people like you didn't feel that you could vote for her.
1: Well, I won't make it personal at first. I'll come back to that. I would say at the start, you have a candidate with poor candidate skills. Uh, No one would question her intellect. I wouldn't question her love of country. I think there's certainly things you can say very positively about Secretary Clinton but the country had Clinton fatigue. There was a sense within the Democratic Party, certainly, going back to 2008, that they needed to change. Obama, I think he put a knife in Joe Biden's political back by uh, supporting her. I think there were a lot of people who felt that she could do the job, but she was not likable. She didn't really have a strong plan to match the moment in the eyes of a majority of voters. But I still think she could have gotten elected, Rory, uh, had there not been those last minute issues, you know, one of which was the leak of those stolen emails right at a moment when Trump was most on his heels after the leak of the audio tape that was really so awful. And the narrative, as we talk about in, in politics here, and I'm sure you do there, suddenly shifted. We'd had shifts between James Comey and the FBI saying, yes, no, maybe, no, uh, about whether or not there were legal issues that deserve federal investigation involving her private email server, and Trump relentlessly pounded those things. The media, certainly, which enjoys conflict and changing narratives, they like the narrative, they create the narrative, but they also like to see it change. And when there are circumstances that force that change and a candidate who, by the way, was weakened in closing days by an illness, and there was videotape of her sort of slumping into an automobile after a hot day in the sun. Normally, you'd think there might be some sympathy for that. I think it conveyed weakness at a time when strength needed to be conveyed. You put all of that together and uh,
0: Trump capitalized and I think stunned the world. Now, Tucker, let's just imagine that You did want to run another campaign and the the phone went and it was somebody in Joe Biden's team saying, listen, you may think that Joe should step down, but he's not going to do that. He's going to fight. How should he fight Trump? Well, one thing is don't play his game. You cannot put out that
1: fire with gasoline. So I think Joe Biden has to be true to himself. I'm one of those who believes steady as she goes conveys... Strength. Biden doesn't really earn a lot of points for strength. But I think in an era of a slightly improving economy, there's evidence out this week of consumer sentiment rising. Certainly the stock market, which is an unreliable gauge of American political sentiment, but th- there's, there's some positive signs certainly there. I think if you're Joe Biden, you convey stability, you convey strength. It's not his strong suit to make and articulate a clear, concise, cutting argument. So I think produced television will matter a lot. Yeah, I think they think very carefully about whether they do debates. I think they put their vice president in places only that address the base of that party. And I think you pray for Trump to become even less stable and even more incoherent over the course of the year ahead. And I still don't feel great about the chances. Mm. This is a risky election.
0: Okay, Taka and Rory, let's have a quick break. The NBA playoffs are
1: here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Oh, even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch. But just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. This is what you love about
2: The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV.
3: So I could take us back to two questions that we often get asked. One of them is, why is Joe Biden running again? Why doesn't he step down and let somebody else have a go? And I guess the second question is, given that he's running again, can you help international listeners understand why he didn't replace his vice presidential candidate?
1: Yeah. So, your second question, Rory, I really had thought, and maybe it was just wishful thinking, that Biden might do to his vice president, in effect, what his president Obama had done to him. Presidents have to have a kind of ruthlessness. Leaders of you know Western democracies want to appeal to our better angels, but they have to be tough as hell. And I think if you were tough as hell and you really knew what the landscape was in front of you, uh, you would take a, a demonstrably weak uh, running mate and replace her with someone who satisfies some of the needs of the base of that party and uh, take the hit. Uh, it would be, there would be all sorts of awful protests and do it far enough in advance to where that becomes history. And you march forward with a stronger running mate and you give people like me a sense that uh, he's got someone a heartbeat away from the presidency I'd feel very comfortable with. There are a lot of people who do not feel that way about Ms. Harris. And she's had chances to prove herself with me and and other people. Some people would never, of course, come around. But to your first question, Biden, you know the threshold characteristic that you've got to have to run for president is almost a defect. You've got to have this ambition and sense of self that is so overweening that you actually think you can be leader of the free world. That's a phrase that may not go down well with all your listeners, but. Certainly, the way Americans see it, the president is that. And to assume yourself in that role in this era with these challenges, with these stakes, is to be, by definition, almost effectively (laughs) convinced in your own abilities. So he's got that. That's a threshold matter. And so, if you've got that, it's pretty hard to pry you know, the keys to the, to the front door of the White House out of your hand. I shared the, the question. I asked it for the last year or two of my Democratic friends and partners. And uh, I, I think he and Mrs. Biden uh, believe that they were the only campaign that could have beaten Trump in 2020. And I think they're probably right about that. And they carry that forward to 2024. And I, I'm not at all so sure. There are at least a half dozen governors in this country Uh, center-left Democratic governors who would, uh, you know, they'd have to fight it out. There'd be a longer primary. Some people don't like that. They get nervous about it. They could have really produced a superb Democratic candidate for president, and
0: they didn't want to take that risk. Now, this is an impossible question for you to answer in one way, but what do you think Ronald Reagan would think of what's happening in the Republican Party and the possibility of this guy coming back? They'd be sickened by it. What this person does
1: is tear at every norm, every pillar of our society. Ronald Reagan could pick at the media, which picked at him quite a bit. And yet he would defend the rights of the free press to the end of the earth. Ronald Reagan defended, believed in and actually read and internalized the United States Constitution. It's like an alien life form to Donald Trump. He has no idea what it is and yet wields its name as a uh, a hammer against his opponents. So I have no doubt in my mind that Ronald Reagan, much like the Bushes who succeeded him,
3: would have no use whatsoever for this Help us understand a little bit how radically different Trump is, because it can feel as though there were people out there who prefigured him. So for example, people like Newt Gingrich seemed to be leading a certain kind of assault on Congress that we can see some elements of today. People like Ross Perot in different ways were popular. Sarah Palin, who you were the aide to during McCain's campaign often seem to be that kind of populist. There are a lot of people very shocked that she became John McCain's running mate. Tell us, what is different about somebody like Trump compared to figures like Sarah Palin that certainly seemed pretty terrifying at the time? You could
1: call Ms. Palin almost proto-Trump in some sense. Very charismatic, very good at bumper sticker length labels and attacks. But unlike Trump, she did not have the ends of the earth confidence, the sense of overweening, overwhelming confidence in herself. She'd been placed in this position by John McCain's choice, not through her own efforts. And say what you will about Donald Trump, he envisioned this, he called it, he executed against it, and he did it. And I think that sets him apart. There are any number of strains of, of politics that contribute to the rise of Donald Trump individuals whose actions and I condemn every single one of those to the degree it contributed to making Trump palatable acceptable reasonable or within bounds but of course you can't forget it was Ronald Reagan George HW Bush and George W Bush who were elected in the era leading up to to Trump so the Republican Party has plenty of very responsible leaders who, like their democratic counterparts, have their strengths and weaknesses, but who nonetheless played within bounds. And it is a sad commentary on all the rare circumstances that
0: weave together into the moment that created Donald Trump. Just on George W. Bush, Tucker, that was when you and I got to know each other because you were part of his media team in the White House. I was in Downing Street. We were trying to coordinate things after September the 11th. Just give us your take on George W. Bush, because I think it's fair to say that his image, particularly when he was president, his image and reputation outside America was not... I think you got a sense of this when you worked in London. You couldn't quite figure why he was seen in the way that he was. So, Give me your take on George W. Bush as a leader and as a president.
1: Well, you remind me of a moment, Alistair, when I landed in London to come work uh, with you in Ten and at the foreign office. And I uh, had some spare time. I sat in a coffee shop in Piccadilly and watched a demonstration go by. This is, remember, this is fall of 2001. And I was struck by the unambiguous condemnations of George W. Bush, even in the wake of 9-11, and even support, or at least signs that nodded in the direction of Osama bin Laden. So I got a sense of how he was perceived, at least on those fringes. And yes, reading the daily papers, working with you on messaging, knowing that it presented a challenge to you, many Republicans, Ronald Reagan, the cowboy, had faced similar I think we had a, a unique moment. We had a unique man, remarkably big-hearted man who could sit in front of a table at the White House and take visitors on a world tour of what he was seeing and analyzing and understanding. And That did not always convey uh, through a television screen or even off the printed page. And. Yet a remarkably charismatic and and bright man who suffered from those attacks without thinking too much about them. He, He let those arrows bounce off of him as best any politician can and did, to our repeated assertion, stick to his beliefs. He stuck to those beliefs even when the facts that were presented to him were not correct. And I think conviction is an absolutely essential quality uh, in a president. He had it, and he had love of country and, and the Western alliance uh, in very challenging times. I'll finish this by just saying, your are president on 9-11. There is no playbook for what has just happened to your country. And Londoners and others there can identify after the attacks in London, which came later. But there was nothing that really had been put in play for a series of steps to take after that kind of asymmetric attack. And I think he did his very best over and over again and gave his all for eight years to the cause of freedom.
0: Mm. What did you think when you got the call saying, (laughs) get your wife, get your family, you go to London? Was this a wonderful surprise for you? Well, as
1: I've told the story, I had a colleague who worked with me, Greg Jenkins, and He and I were going to leave the country and help set up these coalition information centers. And I drew the short straw and sadly got London and he got Islamabad. (laughs) So uh, 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 as difficult as those times were, it was an incredibly broadening experience. My wife had lived in the UK during a summer internship in college. I was delighted to get to know the city and it brought me back uh, as recently as just before Christmas this year and I still love it.
3: Tell us what differences you found between the US and UK systems. I mean, I spent quite a lot of time in Afghanistan and Iraq, and I was always astonished by the difference when I went to a presentation from a US general compared to a UK general. The scale, the professionalism, the depth of stuff going on in the US compared to what things felt like in Britain. Give me a sense of how it felt in terms of scale, expectations. What surprised you in the first few days when you turned up in Downing Street?
1: Well, aside from being in a place where there was a great deal of sympathy for the United States, and yet there was already the sort of counter effect, we hadn't in, at all gotten to that place in the United States. So you knew you'd, to, to borrow a term from uh, American entertainment, that Dorothy was not in Kansas anymore. We were in a, n- a new place, a different place, and yet one that, you know, we have deep roots and deep affection and alliances. So I, I felt at home, but a new home and thoroughly broadened by living in an environment that included many people of Arab descent, including Muslims, a place that was
3: remarkably international. On Downing Street itself, in terms of the resources, the way that it was run, the building itself, how did all of that compare to the White House? And try to be frank, I know you want to be polite, but your honest reaction when you first turned up, did you think,
0: whoa? You thought this is a nice little three-star <laughs> boarding house? It its scale is quite
1: different. You know, we call the land and the compound the White House is on the 18 acres. That's its nickname. There are no 18 acres. <laughs> so uh, you know the scale is different. Uh but you sit in the lobby and you know, a smaller welcome spot. And there are seven newspapers laid out in front of you. I'm the son of a newspaper man. I was so excited to be in a newspaper centric culture. So I love that. I was amazed to get secret information in a brown paper bag <laughs> that was handed uh, around in the foreign office. That was very striking to me. Notwithstanding Donald Trump's transgressions with uh, secret documents, I can assure you, prior to the Trump era, documents were uh, distributed, maintained, burned, and shredded uh, with a care that is extraordinary in the pre-Trump era and will be again someday if it isn't already under Biden. So there were differences. It's this hutch, it's this warren of offices uh, without quite the same sort of reason. Uh, You know, the White House is been added to with the West Wing, which is what most of us really think of when we think about the White House. But the residence, as we call the building that you see visually in your mind, is grand. It's massive. Everything's painted in white. There's a brilliance to it that is quite striking. And then next to it is the Eisenhower office building, this almost baroque old structure with huge columns. And it's got weight to it. It is substantial. So, I didn't quite feel that.
0: Tucker, I think it's very revealing that Rory asks you to describe what Downey Street's like and you ended up describing the White House. We get the message, it's not the same. It's not the
1: same. It's not the same. I mean, what else would I say about that?
0: You had the time of your life. You had the time of your life. Every day
1: started with (laughs) Alistair, you know, ripping into either a spokesman or a newspaperman or a woman uh, in a in a room with fifteen other people, all either because they have that sense of humor or because they were dutiful minions laughing uproariously.
0: Well, it was very, very good to have you. Let me just ask you something else about, um, I mentioned this in the in the introduction, this whole thing about religion. So I can remember George W. Bush once asking me, you know, why I didn't believe and He sort of obviously saw it was kind of quite a defect. You're a committed Christian. And I was, during the Iowa primary, I, I saw this extraordinary television report inside a church in Iowa where the guy in the pulpit was explaining why people of God have to vote for Donald Trump. Now, again, I don't understand what's happened to the American psyche. So give me your analysis from the Christian perspective of what's happening in your apologies. The evangelicals all seem to be so much behind Trump. I don't get it. Uh, There is a
1: cottage industry
0: in trying to
1: determine what is really going on in the evangelical movement. I belong to a mainline Protestant church, Episcopalian. So we uh, nod to the... Uh, Archbishop of Canterbury uh, while having very local control of our churches. And I belong to a church where two weeks ago, we actually talked about politics in what we call an adult forum, not the pulpit, not the church itself, but in a separate room where I was allowed to speak to the idea of depolarization and an organization called Braver Angels and some of the civic reform movements going on in this country. Not every church is like that. It would be impossible to overgeneralize about the Christian church in America. There are many strains of the faith, but any strain of the faith which puts politics above faith and the tenets of the religion. I have a partner, Mike Shannon, who says very wisely that if you're orthodox in your Christianity, you should be unorthodox in your politics. And sadly, that has not happened
3: in too many of the evangelical churches in this country. Not all. I think this is something I'd love to develop more. What is it that those churches say to justify their support for Donald Trump? I mean, obviously, we look at him, we see him as this kind of philandering lying kind of moral abomination, and you've got preachers saying this person is some sort of, I don't know, messianic figure. How do they pitch it? What's the spin? How do they convince their readers that such an improbable person could be a Christian candidate?
1: Uh, I, I think the sense of grievance and being under assault and looked down upon by your, your betters, so to speak, uh, drives a great deal of this, and a sense that the way it was, which in- includes tenets of faith, but much more than that in terms of patriotism, society. I don't believe that it is demonstrably or overwhelmingly racist. I don't believe it is demonstrably or overwhelmingly fueled by hatred, but I do think there is grievance and there is a sense that our betters look down upon us. And the changes that have occurred in our society are too rapid, too destabilizing, and run counter to what we in our
3: group, our in-group, considers the norm and Donald Trump's a fighter. American politics is very, very dominated by particularly Christian religious rhetoric. I guess every president talks about their faith. Joe Biden talks a lot about his faith. And it's not not true in Britain. But America is changing. I mean, when you were born, I guess 91% of people acknowledged themselves as being Christian. When you and Alistair were working together, it was 75%. It's now down to 61% pretty quickly. The number of people identifying as agnostics or atheists is is growing all the time. Do you think that this is going to change? That there's going to come a time when actually religion won't feel essential? When every politician won't have to wear their faith on their sleeve.
1: I could foresee that. I could also foresee a reawakening. It's happened in the church before. I also think that other, particularly the Abrahamic religions, offer uh, something to a diverse and changing America that could uh, show patterns of growth. I'm not saying we've hit we, meaning the church, broadly defined, has hit bottom. It could go uh, lower, and there are fears that it will. But whether through faith or DNA, I uh, have some hope and optimism, and I do believe it's a country founded on some principles that are quite consistent with the church, but live well beyond the walls of uh, the church grounds and have been deeply influential in an enlightened world, which may be going through some very dark times and could get darker. But I try to keep my eye on the long game and believe that this country is a beacon of hope and that we can restore some of the luster to our uh, Western ideals and work together with our allies to advance freedom and flourishing, even in very troubled times. I'm a strong internationalist who's fearful of a crumbling alliance around Ukraine. I am a pro-Israeli, small-D Democrat who believes uh, the people of Gaza need an awful lot. And that's not that far out of the American mainstream. I want to remind you all that there is in this country and I think in much of the Western world, a perception gap where the people on the polls for the various ideologies believe that the other is just far worse than they actually are. And there's numbers that back this up in this country. So what I'm trying to be part of is better conversations that lead to open discussions that don't all end in the mushy middle. Uh, We're still going to disagree, but to disagree better, uh, more smartly. And within the framework of a wide uh, ideological spectrum that nonetheless rules out the rise of authoritarianism and socialism run amok.
0: Tucker, one thing that we used to agree about, and I discovered when we met in London a few weeks ago, we maybe aren't necessarily on the same page. Going back to when you worked in London, you were pretty much, just as I was kind of 100% supportive of Tony Blair, you were 100% supportive of George Bush, but I get the feeling from talking to you that you maybe have a lot of worries now about the strategies that we pursued at that time, and in particular, maybe the, the Iraq war that followed on from the Afghanistan war. Now, Rory and I had a very long podcast discussion last year on the anniversary of the war, and so we don't need to rehearse all of the arguments, but I'd just like to Get your sense of how your kind of mindset on this may have changed in in recent years.
1: Well, I'll start by saying that I am on the record over and over again defending President Bush, Prime Minister Blair, particularly while I was still in the government left in early 04. And I think with the passage of time, I recognize that toward the end of his administration, George W. Bush made some long overdue, very helpful changes, which were later undermined as... Our government swung uh, in a different direction. I think there were nothing but the best of intentions for our country and our alliance and the West and peace. I think there was, as I've said, no playbook for contending with our enemies in a post nine eleven world. And I believe that those who've accused Blair and Bush and others of lying are doing so willfully, knowing that they are wrong, knowing that a lie is about intention and not effect. I think there were very damaging effects from mistakes, but a mistake is far different from a lie. And in the way that George W. Bush held true to supporting our troops, trying to defend our country, I believe he did the best he could and he will let history judge him, but he didn't lie. And yes, he's human. And there were mistakes. He made mistakes. I made mistakes. And we're all living in a post-9-11, post-Iraq, (laughs) post-Syria, Yeah, post-we're
3: in tumultuous times. I was waiting for the but, which didn't quite come. So I'm going to give you a bit bit of an opportunity for the but. Because the truth is, you know, I, I was in Iraq and Afghanistan. And Iraq you know, when I was there last year, it is absolutely astonishing. You spent with your allies three and a half trillion dollars on those wars. You now drive from Baghdad airport into the capital city and you see signs praising uh, Saddam Ghassim Soleimani, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard commander attacking American terrorism. You have Iranian militia groups celebrated on every mile on the road to Mosul. Afghanistan, we invaded to topple the Taliban government. We spent a trillion dollars and we quite literally handed the country back to the Taliban again. So talk me through this.
1: I'll talk you through this. Uh, Joe Biden led that debacle of a withdrawal from Afghanistan. I and countless other Americans began to go very negative on Joe Biden as soon as that happened and have held to that ever since. Rory, we live in an era of changed expectations and dramatically greater problems. And I think we've got to all have the will to do the very best we can. I think there are enormous problems in this difficult, uh, at times decaying world, and yet all we can do is what we can do. And I'm committed in my own way, outside of elective politics, of doing what one newsman said uh, to another problem solver in this country. My friend Alan Miller was trying to engage a journalist, Ted Koppel, some of you would know, in the cause of fighting disinformation. And finally, Koppel said... But Alan, it looks like you're trying to empty the ocean with a teaspoon. And Alan took a deep breath and said, yeah, but what else are you going to do? And I think we've all got teaspoons. And yes, the ocean is boiling in spots, Rory. What are you going to do? Would you say- But what
0: can I do? But what (laughs) can I do? What a book. What a book, Tucker. Thank you. And I saw that you mentioned that in your church. I saw the video- When I was looking into your recent pronouncements, is there a part of you that thinks that some of this decaying and disorder that you talk about was, in a sense, directly flowing from some of the decisions that we made, we were part of back then? It
1: reminds me of Rory's question about, you know, did Newt Gingrich, did Sarah Palin, you know, I I think history's a, a, a big ocean and there are a lot of rivers that have fed into it. So I couldn't single out any one thing except to say, that when you are fighting on really high stakes ground with the eyes of the world upon you and mistakes lead to enormous expenditure of treasure and lost lives, that's bound to have unstabilizing, destabilizing rather effects. And it has been the case that too many destabilization events have occurred in the last 25 years in America and we need to get back on more solid ground.
3: So the time when you were in politics, the time when you were working with Alistair, was the end of a period of enormous optimism and American dominance, more and more democracies, more and more prosperity around the world, more and more free trade, in fact. We've now entered an era where, since 2014, every year, it's been getting more dangerous. Extreme poverty's been going up in Africa. There's a lot of violence, and trade is diminishing. And one of the questions, I guess, is does the U.S. have the appetite anymore? You talked about being leader of the free world. This is a system since the Second World War, which was predicated on, I guess, open borders, free trade, America as a global policeman. All of that seems to be collapsing. And I don't get the sense that either Biden or Donald Trump are really very interested in encouraging Americans to lean into those things again. I think that's a fair assessment. I don't doubt
1: that we're in a period of enormous transition. I still see the United States coming around to its place. That place will be different from what it was as it changed really, you know, throughout the last century. But it is a place that is fueled by innovation, fed by our diversity, a strength. We're not bowed to almost in a temple like fashion by some of the far left. Uh, so, diversity, innovation, enormous economic strength, and the ability to reinvent itself those things still exist in the America I live in. I'm trying in my very small way with my very small teaspoon to be part of efforts at the kind of grassroots level, truly grassroots. We need better leaders as well. And if I have to vote for Joe Biden over Donald Trump, so be it, but I still be looking for stronger leaders than that. And I think our history proves that sometimes when you most need them, they do come forward. And I've hope to be part of making a grassroots movement that demands that that happen come into being.
0: Tucker, my last question, and thanks for all the time that you've given us, I, I want to ask you about your sense of, of Britain. As you say, you, I've lived here for a time, you lived here for a time, and you know we've just been involved in these strikes in the Red Sea against the Houthis. There is a sense of still, I think, of a, a kind of special relationship, so-called, but I just want you a sense of how you think Britain is seen in the world and how you think Britain is seen by, by Americans. Roy and I met some congressmen and women recently, and they, you know, they'd come over for a trip to Britain. But some of them, I sense, didn't maybe take Britain quite as seriously as we were taken in the past. and I, I just wonder whether you think we are the same country that, w- that you kind of grew up with and, and, and whether there's still that same affection for Britain.
1: I think it is more muted than it used to be. I think it has changed. I think it's deeply unfortunate, but the same forces that brought Trump that uh, were reflected in Brexit have served to, in both cases in my view, undermine uh, the standing of our two nations in the eyes of the world and really your uh, economic strength, ours. I think you add up COVID, media fragmentation, destabilized world, terrorism, uh, and the rise of authoritarians, and I think there's a great need for nations like ours. I'm pulling for Great Britain and the United Kingdom,
3: and I'm pulling for the United States. Tucker, my, my last question is trying to understand the motivations of senior Republican politicians and the way they get in behind Trump. You were talking about your friend, Senator Tim Scott who seems to be, you know, on the surface, a very charming, polite, attractive figure. And he got up on that stage with Donald Trump at the end of that vote in New Hampshire. And he said, I guess you must really hate Nikki Haley because you've endorsed me. And Tim Scott put a big grin on his face and he said, I love you, Donald Trump, right? And then I'm left there thinking, what is happening? You know, these senior, serious, impressive people, Congress people, senators, all of them bending the knee to him. What's going on? I have long felt, Rory, that uh, if those politicians uh, in the Republican Party
1: had seen themselves as being on a plane with engine trouble, uh, they could have wrapped arms around each other and 10 of them, 15 of them even, taken the three or four parachutes left on that potentially crashing airplane and jumped out all together. They might've lost six or eight of them as a percentage, 60 or 80% of them, and yet many would live and the party would have survived. And we could have put Donald Trump's uh, political career and his marring of the American landscape to an end by convicting him during impeachment, either of those two times, but especially the second time. And they failed to do that. Whether that was lack of foresight, wishful thinking, or fear of the voters and the electorate that keeps them in office, there's way too much of the latter. It doesn't speak well of the character and ability of the people entrusted by Republicans, at least, to hold office in this country. I think Democrats have many weak spots in their elected ranks, but I couldn't compare the problems on the left to those that the Republican Party has made, created, sustained, and doubled down on.
0: Tucker, I'm going to cheat and have a final, final question, but it has the advantage that you've got a one-word answer. Who's the president going to be in two years' time? Wishful answer (laughs) or a real answer? No. What do you think? What do you think? Yeah, I think Joe Biden. Do you? You don't don't look or sound convinced. I think we
1: all have a year of tremendous uncertainty in front of us. Yeah. But uh, I do think there's power in hope. I, I know I'm coming across as sort of a I've been called by my friend Stuart Stevens as one of those sucker optimists in the Bush <laughs> world. I think optimism takes action to, to make it hope. I do have uh, some hope. Uh, I will do what I can to try to produce outcomes that improve the country, but there's not much I can do. I hope many others, and I know many others will join me in that. The South Carolina motto in Latin is, while I breathe, I hope, Dum sparrow, sparrow. I do breathe, I do hope. And I do believe that we'll ultimately make the right decision.
0: Well, listen, thanks for giving us so much of your time. It's lovely to see you again. Great to see you, Alistair. Rory, nice to meet you. Thank you, Tucker. Thank you very much.
3: So, Rory, what did you learn from that? Well, I, I learned a lot. I mean, look, I, I've got a, I've got American relatives who are going to be as enraged by that as some of your teacher friends were by the, the Gillian Keegan interview. <laughs> I can assure you that my in laws do not want to hear that Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush were fine, (laughs) upstanding Americans. So, I mean, I think he's a very sympathetic man. And of course, you know, I'm a a left-leaning conservative who broke against Boris Johnson. So I feel a lot of empathy for him. But there will be a lot of my American friends listening saying this guy was allied with people that they would have seen as pretty unpleasant right-wing Republicans who created a lot of the problems that led up to Trump.
0: You know, what I thought was really interesting was when you were pressing him about, I guess, about ambition, really. I mean, I hadn't really thought of what his answer about why Biden was standing and why some of these rep- Republicans weigh in behind Trump was really about the, just this sort of ambition in a sense and, and I think at the Trump Biden level, this unbelievable confidence that they have that they are the right people.
3: Yeah. It's kind of obvious when you think about it. It's such a profound observation, isn't it? Because, you know, it, it's the same when you ask, you know, why did Robert Buckland, who was on the left of the Conservative Party, endorse Boris Johnson? Why did Rishi Sunak or Oliver Dowden endorse Boris Johnson? Presumably It's because politics has become basically a game about making it to the top. It's like Machiavelli on steroids. And Mm. all that really matters to the key Republicans is that they keep their seats and they have a chance of getting into Trump's cabinet.
0: Mm. Well, I think we should, you know, I think it was good to get somebody on who's obviously not a leader like Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, Arnold Schwarzenegger, some of the other Americans we've had on. But I think through this year, we should look to get a few different voices, even at the risk of annoying your in-laws. I mean, I thought he was lovely. Um,
3: the other thing that was interesting, which is very, very American, I think, is obviously his openness about faith, his belief that you know Christianity is going to revive, mm. his extraordinary sort of almost sermons on hope that kept coming back again and again. Actually, I should have dug more into South Carolina. I thought he was very good on the motivations of Trump voters, very good on saying, that he doesn't want them to be demonized as racists, mm. but his attempts to try to understand why voters feel so angry, so betrayed, so mm. lost that they would get behind this guy.
0: We didn't really get time to talk about this organization you mentioned, Braver Angels, which is very much <laughs> it's really this kind of disagreeing agreeably thing and depolarizing. And the book I mentioned on the podcast recently was actually a book that Tucker sent to me. This uh, Monica Guzman who wrote this book. I hadn't have thought of it that way before because he's definitely changed from the person in terms of his the way that he talks about politics he's definitely changed. Well tell us a bit about this. Tell us what he was like when you first met him. He was very like he is very warm, very charming, very open. But you know, he would be like me in terms of look this is what we're going to do. He had you know, I had a touch of the Liart Waters about me. he had a touch of the Liart Waters about him. You do what you have to do to win the argument that you're engaged in at the time. And I think he was always very reflective. But I think what happens because of the polarization that's gone on now, I think he feels we have to come at politics and political argument from a different way.
3: So he's, he's somebody that would have almost come across 20 years ago as a kind of ruthless realist. Yeah. But now when he sees people like his friend, the senator from South Carolina, getting in behind Trump, he's like, there's, an, there's a limit to the ruthless realism.
0: Yeah, he's thinking around it. As opposed to just thinking well, well, that's the obvious right thing to do because you know that's your team and you're trying to win. He held back. You were right to say when you said you know you were waiting for the but. You know when I've spoken to him before, he he kind of has been a bit tougher on the policies that we pursued in in the the aftermath of, uh, particularly in relation I think to Iraq. But I guess he's also one of those guys. He's pretty loyal. He just, he, you know, you would never get him to say a word against George W. Bush's integrity and. You know, he's still a bit like me with Tony. He'll speak up for him because he gets plenty, plenty of people who don't. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and uh, so when you were working with him in 2001, began working with him in 2001, did you think there was a very distinctive American approach to communication which was a bit different to the British approach in those first few days and weeks working together?
0: Did, did you notice that he came from a
3: different context and culture?
0: I think he fitted in very, very well with what we were trying to do. And we were trying to build these international Coalition information centers they were called in Washington, Europe, and Islamabad. In fact, the, the guy that we he talked about is Fred Greg Jenkins, the other person who, who drew the short straw may shortly be a cabinet minister because Pat McFadden was uh <laughs> I can remember Pat's Pat's quite a lugubrious face anyway, what when I said to him Pat, I really think you need to go to his lab about his his face did fall somewhat, <laughs> but anyway, off he went, and as ever, did a did a brilliant job. But no, this all started in the context of what we'd tried to do during the Kosovo war when we did build in these internationalized communications infrastructure. So after 9-11, I sent a copy of all the papers that I'd done or on on the Kosovo situation to Karen Hughes, who was Bush's communications director. As a result of which, we then sort of got these new structures. And Tucker was the guy that Bush sent to come and be his man inside the London hub, as it were. So I think I think our communication systems were pretty, pretty similar.
3: Well, Alistair, thank you very much for getting on. I mean, I thought it was really interesting. And I, you know, strength to his arm. I, it's really good to see somebody of that seniority taking the fight to Trump. See you soon. See you soon. Bye-bye.